Oh, Dave, you look bloody awful. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have you tried any of the following things? A bath? Uh, it's too hot. Uh, some sleep? No, that's not an option. Well, in which case, Ol, can I come in to you some skincare products? Oh, yes, please. Well, let me alert your attention, Ol, to UpCircle Beauty. They are pioneers of what they call byproduct beauty. Do you know what that is? I do not know what that is, Dave. Tell me! Shut up and listen, then. What they do is they take ingredients that have been discarded by other industries and they repurpose them into skincare products. So they take olive stones left behind by the olive oil industry, which they transform into a face mask. Or they take chai spices that have been used for making tea and they make them into aromatic soaps. Or they take coffee grounds, which have been used to make... Coffee? Coffee, that's right, from cafes, and turn them into caffeinated scrubs and brightening serums. Oh, so they're all very, very fab. That does sound fab, and what sounds even fabber is that their packaging is well nice for the planet, Dave. It's all recycled and recyclable, and if you really want to, you can return your packaging to be refilled and sent back to you for a discount, which is pretty bloody nice if you ask me. And it's all vegan, it's all cruelty-free, it's all organic, and there ain't no palm oil in it, nothing. Super duper. Now, if you are a Babbel listener, you are already 15% more beautiful than the general population. So to reward your beauty, you can get 15% off all of these lovely products at upcirclebeauty.com if you enter the code BABBEL, B-A-B-B-L-E. So that's 15% off upcirclebeauty.com. Use the code BABBEL. to Sustainababble 223. Welcome yourself all to Sustainababble 223. How's your insulation coming on? Slowly and Very indeed good. surely. You are lagging behind. Hey! We are Sustainababble <laughs> and that is the quality of the bants. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast. Ain't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet and why how even both, though both are a bit nosed, people and the planet we can still have a little chuckle about it every now and then, yes? Yes. And what are we going to be having a little chuckle and a think about this week? Well-being, Dave. Being well, but not on an individual basis. Not that go and check your chakras and oh, have no, a chai latte chakra alone. type thing. Uh, what about our collective well-being, societal well-being, planetary well-being, and why it may not necessarily be being prioritised by the people what are in charge and it may not necessarily be the sort of thing that our economy as it exists is set up to deliver but that's enough of me trying to summarize what this thing is we're going to talk to somebody who actually works on this and knows a lot about what this thing is yeah we are talking to the fabulous Catherine Trebek what is doctor no less doctor Catherine Trebek uh, who is a writer researcher and advocate on well-being she's written loads of books she's worked with loads of governments about how to get well-being economy governments she's really nice very clever and talks really clearly and engagingly about this thing that can be like this term well-being can be a bit like flippy floppy what does it mean whimsy mimsy does it mean sitting in a field does it mean having nice soap what does it 
mean. But she will tell you what it means, Ol, and you will learn stuff. So shut up and listen. Shut up and listen. Right, just the usual disclaimers.、Um, if anything that Dave or I or Catherine says buggers up your well-being, well, take it up with us, not with the people who employ us, because though we work for environmental charities, these are very much our own views. Okay. Okay. Jolly good. Now we are a listener-supported podcast,、uh, and that means that we need your support. Listeners, yes. so yes. go to Patreon. Join the lovely Patreon people who give us cash. www.patreon.com/forward/slash/sustainababble. Thank you to all of the people who do give us a couple of quid a month、um, or thereabouts. It makes a huge difference. Really helps keep the show on the road, and we would love it if you wanted to join them. Right. So this was our chat with Catherine, and we started by asking her why the bloody hell, if she's so interested in well-being. Did she choose to go and live in Scotland? Um, well, I mean, Australia is <laughs> sometimes too hot,、uh, and extremely hot, and extremely thirsty, and dry, and with all the consequences that goes. Goes with that, so I think moving to a cooler, rainy, <laughs> rainy country is probably a really smart thing to do. Actually, and there's a lovely, lovely Scottish phrase. I can't remember the Gaelic, but the, the essence is that your your feet will bring you to where your heart is, and maybe well-being is landing where your heart is. And I still, I mean, being in Scotland 15 or so years now, I still love it so much. Beautiful, beautiful place. So yeah, it pretty, is I, nice. It's, it it's is nice, isn't it? It's a beautiful place, so yeah, I'm happy being here. Personally, happy,、um, but it's and this is, I think, one of the not to dive in too quickly, but this is one of the challenges of focusing too much on individual well-being because I'm personally doing quite well.、Um, I've been working still, family's healthy, and and then as soon as you look outside your own little bubble, you see so many, so much cause for for worry and anxiety and.、Um, Concern for communities just over the road and then around around the world, and so I think it's just an example that we don't want to focus too narrowly on those individual measures, and we have to take into account wider measures of how society, how the collective is doing. I hate it when the waffles stick together. Sticking together is what good waffles do. <laughs> on that note, if you work on well-being, you've studied it, you've written books about it. Do you have a sense of what is? Of when you are being well and when you're not, do you kind of know what the things are that make you personally in a state of well-being? Is that even a sensible question? Well, to ask? No, I, I, yeah, I, th- I think it's a good question because if you're if you're thinking individually, I, I certainly I don't consider myself an expert. I I defer to many folks who have studied this more deeply than me. And listeners, people, Catherine is Catherine is、yeah. an expert, and that's no, why she's no, on no, our no, podcast. No. Yes, yes. <laughs> what she said there was bollocks. She's an expert. <laughs> no, I'm constant constant student of this, but one of The, one of the scholars who I deeply admire in this sort of work is a, well the late Chilean economist Manfred Maxneef, who talks about fundamental human needs, and and his work is mirrored in a similar sort of analysis,、um, even from very different corners of scholarship. Whether it's neuroscience, where you have sort of brain scientists looking at you know what what makes a bit of different parts of our brain light up, psychology. Romantic songs over the decades, religions, and so on. If you look, pair all of that back to its very essence, you get the sort of things that Max Neef talks about as fundamental human needs. Things like dignity, 
connectedness, um, physical, mental health, sense of purpose, sense of meaning. Wi-Fi. Well, well, yeah, obviously, you know, fancy kitchen mm. uh, as well, right handbag. <laughs> and, you you know, you can, you can you, you get that sense. And Max Neef's point I think is really powerful because he says these things are universal to humans wherever we are in the world. And where we differ across different countries and times and cultures and so on is how we go about satisfying them. And that's where you get that diversity because it's at its essence, there is some commonalities. And in tiny, tiny pieces of work I've done over the years, I've done been involved in some deliberative conversations with communities in across Scotland, with communities in India. Friends did a very similar sort of project in Namibia. And they're all involved sitting down with people in these very, very diverse locations and having conversations about what really mattered to them and it's incredible how similar even the similar sort of language terminology you know it's relationships it's having enough shelter it's having sufficiency of income not having crazy salaries but having having enough to participate in society and social affiliation and connections and I think it's quite a beautiful reminder that these are what makes you know Tim you've just Tim Jackson you've spoken to recently he described this as what makes us innately human I think that there is those commonalities and and I mean, there's a lot of folks who will say that, you know, searching for your own happiness is the route to unhappiness, but trying to be in service of the happiness of others. And I think there is something in that and taking care of, yeah, the beyond your own four walls and thinking about who else is out there. And when you're having those conversations, so if, if everybody broadly has got the same sort of... Uh, vibe you know that, that what they want is broadly the same and that actually they don't you know we're, we're not all striving for like a yacht and oodles of cash and you know all of the space in the world but what do they think other people want because they this is a thing a theme that's come up in quite a lot of our conversations is this like this weird perception that we all sort of want the same relatively modest mm. thing but we all kind of assume that other people want more and is is that borne yeah. out by your Chats? I think I think it's a fascinating question, and of course, you have layered onto that people's own perceptions of what others are after, and they they you see that. I think there is a paradox between when you give people a chance to reflect on what matters most to them, and then you observed behaviour. Where I mean, there's a shopping street here in Glasgow, Buchanan Street, and you know, prior to the pandemic, I mean, it's ferocious in, in terms of you know, the, the, the shopping shopping as a sport. Uh, it's it's really quite quite incredible. You and you do, you know, people going after these yachts and so on. But I think there's something that layered onto almost masking that deep humanity that that Max Neef and people like Tim Jackson are talk about is layered on is is economic systems, uh, mind mindsets around that, and advertising. Not to mention that, you know, so you know, and decades of societal conversation around, you know, the route to happiness is more consumption. And, and so there's these tensions that people are grappling with, I think, is trying to reconcile uh, what you wouldn't. And I think there is something about giving people the chance and the time to reflect, not just asking them very, well, go out, you know, show us what makes you happy, because then you, you see those very instant instant pressures in terms of, yeah, more consumption and, and outward displays. But when it's when we're, I think, we're at our more reflective that we think actually you can go into some of those deeper more profound ideas, what's important. And that's why when I talk about the, the word well-being, almost there's sort of two sides to that. And I talk about the two SCs of, of well-being. 
this isn't particularly scientific. This is just me trying to wrap my head around the different ways that people understand well-being because it's a it's a term that's fairly ubiquitous at the moment, almost as ubiquitous as the different meanings and different understandings of it. So it's a, I guess that's a good thing. It's an inclusive term, but it does mean that there's a lot of yeah different. What the hell does it mean? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. So I so I think of it these two SCs, and and so the one SC is survival and coping, and that, and that I think would pertain to the school of thought and the scholars associated with it who focus very much on well-being as the individual, the subjective self-reported well-being, the measures they'd look at will be variations of questions along the lines of on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you, how anxious, how fulfilled do you feel your life is, so getting to the, from hedonic to eudaimonic ideas of, of happiness. Oh, what, I, what, hang on, uh, hang on. Wait, no, no, I don't want to pretend I didn't say that. <laughs> Well, just no, we're going to give you a klaxon for that. Hang on a minute. Yeah, sort of individual fleeting happiness to more profound thinking about your life as a as a whole. And but they're still they're still relatively individualized. And my concern, and that, I think that's important. I'd say that I'd want that on the table when we're thinking about well being. But I think if you only have that on the table, some of the prescriptions in terms of policy change that flow from that are what I describe as survival and coping prescriptions, where they talk about we need more mental health treatment services. Which we we need, we absolutely do, but why? So, and when we stop and ask, but why? Well, what is it? Why are people needing more treatment? And why is the onus on the individual as a subject of treatment as opposed to thinking, well, what's going on? Why are people requiring mental health services, you know, the employability agenda, the res- even the individual resilience agenda, a lot of the mindfulness conversations I think come in here as well. And that's where I, I think I'd say we also need to turn our attention as well to the other SC, and that's what I'd describe as system change. And that's where the wellbeing economy agenda, so we very much put the word wellbeing as an adjective around the economy. And our, for us, the onus of change is the economic system. And it needs to be transformed into one that can serve collective well-being. So not just the individual, but society. And that takes into account issues of economic structure, environmental health, those, you know, social justice, those sorts of questions. And so it's not saying the individual is unimportant, but it's saying let's not stop there and let's not stop at just helping people survive and cope. I mean that that's I'd say that's a humanitarian cause that's an urgent let's do that now and today but let's also say let's raise our gaze and look at some of the structures in the economic system that also need attending to at the same time are any of the following things uh, um, at the centre of your well-being economy, uh, sitting in a field and singing "Kumbaya" to yourself and having a nice quiet time. Is um, that uh, you know, maybe um, in terms of maybe if it helps act, uh, people who are part of this movement recharge and be ready to then go out and fight the system again. I mean, you can't you can't constantly be an, an activist. You need a break. You need to take take a breather and relax a little bit. Um, that's not something I'd put on my top ten of well-being prescriptions, but I think for in, you know for individuals who are maybe needing to focus on their own well-being, that's that's lovely. Mm. And just, you know, if people are doing that, they're not running out buying those trendy bathrooms or 
new trendy kitchens and they're that's probably an activity that's much more community orientated it's probably low carbon depending on how they got to the field um, <laughs> probably quite a social activity so i mean on in on one sense maybe it is deeply part of it <laughs> but it is that's the sort of thing they often say oh this is what the well-being is about it's just yeah. so that's what i'm getting like i guess what i'm getting at is different definitions that people use of well-being mm. which seem to be different from the one that you use another one being like buy this fuzzy peach shower gel <laughs> because it will improve your <laughs> well-being know. or have a uh, pedicure and a spray tan and yeah, yeah. and you're Presumably you're definitely not talking about like consumption related things that promise to make you, you know. No, though I do get, I do get media alerts um, for the wellbeing economy. (laughs) Whoever, whatever algorithm compiles those media alerts, one that comes through is the wellness economy. And so often it's talking about, Hmm. you know, the Hyatt's latest spa retreat that they've Uh, opened in Sri Lanka or or somewhere. And I mean, and yeah, you do get talk about the, the wellness economy and the industry around that. And and I was in my local newsagent a few weeks ago, and I was looking at the stock of magazines, and there was must have been about five different titles that were described as happiness magazines. And I thought, okay, what are these folks on about? And I sort of picked them up the shelf and was looking at the, the table of contents. And one of them was saying five ways to well-being. And there were things like have a yoga go on a yoga retreat in india uh-huh. invite your friends around for dinner um nice. go, yeah go on a jog in your local forest and have play go walk your dog which yeah they're fairly intuitive but also they smash capitalism wasn't one of those well, <laughs> i was gonna say yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was the neoliberal destruction the handbook <laughs> and, those in. But, and then i think that's a that's a very shows that very individualized orientation of it but also it shows what a rarefied space that is i mean who, if you're working three jobs in the gig economy to put food on the table for your family how are you going to have time let alone the money to have your friends around every second week how are you if your local oh, parts are not to safe, India for, let alone yeah and yeah here we're going to talk about even the carbon footprint of those flights to yoga retreats the other side of the world but it's it really it, in a way it just seemed those magazines made me really angry because they just seem profoundly naive about inequalities and agency and in society and you know who who has the luxury of being able to pay attention to those sorts of things and that's why to me we have to at the same time very much focus on those those wider economic structures Well, let's talk about some of the economic structures and systems then. Like, before we get on to how things could be done differently, like, what is it about the current economy, the current systems and structures in which we operate that is not good for well-being? Oh, how long have you got? I mean, we could about twenty minutes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's there is so many, and I think a lot of folks will have their different emphasis of what they want to unpick and transform. But if you think about it in different layers of the system, I think at, at one level you have that very, that purpose of what our economy is designed to do. And at that macro sense, it's an economic system designed for and dependent on economic growth as measured by GDP. And perhaps we can come back to all the, all the flaws with that. But underneath that, when you have a, a policy system that's designed in service of that goal of growth, you look at the sort of business models that are created, structures of those businesses, their profit orientation, their timeframes, do they take into account issues around 
quality of the environment, their impact on the environment, how they treat their workers and so on. Then there's, it's it's so many layers, let alone the des- physical design of our cities, our infrastructure, I mean, quality of jobs, who's getting those jobs. I mean, there's, there's a huge gamut. And it's this is one of the challenges with this, this conversation is that the attention and the changes that are required are, are multifaceted. I, I think of this as a hundred thousand piece jigsaw puzzle which means it's it's complicated there's multiple shifts required and we need quite literally a really huge diverse movement behind this and and thank goodness that movement is there and it's growing and lots of people are bringing their different expertise to the party and putting those different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle into place so you you are focusing on those wider economic structures and you're doing this quite sort of scary and impressive sounding work uh, around like well-being governments, right? Which is, I guess, not getting individuals to go on a yoga retreat, but trying to get entire, you know, systems that run states to sort of prioritise mm. something else, which is which is better, I think. Tell us a bit more about that and... Um, tell us why Scotland and Wales are so much better than England. <laughs> well, that's another thing of how long have you got on that conversation. <laughs> but so the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership is is something I've been chipping away at for a long time, even before I moved to We All. And I have to say, it's probably been one of the hardest projects I've ever worked on. I'm never going to be a diplomat when I grow up uh, because just getting governments, <laughs> one, to commit to this sort of agenda not even not even the agenda but the idea of a partnership space to speak about the agenda was profoundly hard but we we eventually launched the the initiative with three governments at the OECD's wellbeing forum in South Korea in November 2018 and so that was with Scotland New Zealand and Iceland and how, what it is in a way it's about governments who recognise that in the 21st century, the economics and the national success of a country is not just how big's your GDP, economic growth. They recognise the need to focus on different dimensions of, of wellbeing. So they share that, that vision in a sense, but they also share a, a humility that they know that none of them have got all the answers and so they want to learn from each other. And we know this so often that it's a rare government that will stride on out on their own and out into the clear blue water. They really want to see what others are doing and they emulate other, other governments. And so this is essentially recognising that real politique of how governments operate and trying to build a bit of a club around this agenda that they can support each other and learn from each other and explore common, common challenges together. And I'll be honest with you, it's always felt a little fragile until about six months after the launch when... Nicola Sturgeon did her TED talk and so when she was standing on that red dot on the TED stage, she chose to talk about the Wellbeing Economy Government's partnership. That was, that was a huge moment for us. And growth in GDP should not be pursued at any or all cost. In fact, the argument of that group is that the goal, the objective of economic policy should be collective well-being. How happy... And Wales and Finland have joined as well, joined as well. So we've up, we're up to five. I'm hoping we might get to seven, and then we could call it the We Seven, as opposed oh, to the G Seven, which nice. would be great, and maybe even twenty <laughs> when we can get to the G Twenty. But but what's yeah, what's good about these governments is that sense that they they need to learn, and it's a journey. And I would love to be able to hold them up as heroes and champions because I think we need different 
different heroes and champions, but they all really recognize that they're not there yet. So there's a there's a lovely phrase I've heard. I've never been able to find the original source, but apparently it's Sigmund Bauman, the, the sociologist, and that a good society is one that knows it's not yet good enough. And I think that mm. kind of applies to the, the wellbeing economy government's partnership, that, that those governments, are, they know they've got a long way to go because um, none of these countries have, have nailed it. They're all a long way. Gonna no do that. Oh, just gonna no. The one I really like is what Wales is doing with their Wellbeing of Future Generations Act mm. that applies to all 36, 30, 46 or 47, I think, local you know, government, government agencies. And they all have to speak to these seven wellbeing priorities that were that emerged through a big consultation with Welsh, Welsh people. And what they've added into that is this office of the Future Generations Commissioner, Sophie Howe and her team, and she's got the job to scrutinise all the actions of those agencies, scrutinise draft government budgets, legislation, and just check, does this add up? Does this contribute to that agenda of, of wellbeing of, of future generations? And I think that's really exciting because it's starting to add a bit of edge to it. None of this sounds very macho. Very Terribly mad. sorry about that. Huh? Do, you like, do you like it to be macho? Huh? No, I think that's a good thing, obviously. But I'm just struck by, mm. I think I'm right in saying that the, did you say it's Iceland, New Zealand, Scotland? Finland and Wales. Okay, so Wales doesn't have a female leader no, now, does no. it? No, Mark, Mark Drakeford's, yeah, a token yeah. bloke around the, the table there. But the rest are all, yeah. uh, all the leaders are women, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. And this sounds like a sort of trite question, but is that a coincidence, or or do you think that's an I don't, integral part? I don't of this? think so. I think I think it is important, and and I mean I don't want to essentialize women because I think some blokes are really really good at this too, and I and I think some women are crap at this, but I think there is something about perhaps more more willingness to collaborate, um, more willingness to put away a competitive edge and bring to the fore a cooperative edge. And during the pandemic, perhaps more willingness to not flinch when it came to having to lock down the economy in order to protect the health of, of citizens as well and, and not panic about economic growth as much. Um, there have been some some research into it and, and I think there, there is something out there. I mean, they, you could also say there's a smaller states as well and maybe there's something there about mm. innovation happening at the margins that it's easier for civil society to influence and access government decision makers. I would say that Canada um, comes along to the WeGo policy lab so that they're, they're there in anything but but name only. And so there's a... Well, these are all just these are countries with like lots of outside and mountains and yeah. rain. That's what all of these places are. There must be something about living in a place where it's rainy and steep that makes you want to <laughs> divert your attention to looking after the people a bit better. Well, well, that goes back to my first my first point. I mean, why would you want to live anywhere other than Scotland? <laughs> there are different types of midgey, but the ones found in Scotland are of the biting variety and live in damp or boggy ground. They move around in herds of millions, meaning escape is not an option. So we got a question from uh, one of our listeners, Graham, who a uh, Patreon supporter. If you are a Patreon supporter of Sustainable, you get to ask questions of guests. 
just a reason you should just a reason you should uh, join us on patreon and, and, for access that's what uh, you do exactly yeah and graham <laughs> says <laughs> cash for comments cash for Catherine's brain why do politicians have such a strong rhetoric about supporting the economy as opposed to supporting people even if they think that a strong economy is actually the magic ingredient to happiness um, so I guess like, I'm really interested in that. Like, why, why is this sort of story, why, why do politicians have to serve the economy yeah. rather than saying what actually we'd all like them to say, which is we're going to look after you? Uh, lovely question, Graham. Thank you. And well done for supporting Sustainable Babble. Good. Nice work. Good. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it is, it is a, it's a strange, strange situation because the phenomenon of economic growth in the way we understand it now is relatively new. I mean, GDP was created in the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression and partly it was created to measure how Roosevelt's New Deal impacted society. And, you know, here we are some 90 years, 90 years or so on still using that same, same metric. But the idea of growth, I mean, it's, it's reinforced in so many of our institutions, uh, voting rights in so many big multilateral agencies are around growth. The international system of national accounts reinforces that we have to measure our GDP. A lot of the European Union structures are hinging around economic growth, so growth and stability pact, the Maastricht Treaty being one example. Even those big international geopolitical clubs, things like the G7, the G20, I mean, the only thing that those countries really have in common is uh, you know, the size of their, their economies in GDP sense. So you get that that sort of, if I can say, cultural norm amongst policies and policymakers amongst governments that growth and, and GDP is the be-all and end-all. But we've also got it so many of our institutions and our systems are designed for and dependent on economic growth. And so, you know, the way our pension systems are set, set up, unemployment systems and so on. So it's, it is a, we've, we're in a bit of a bind. And, and so we, you hear when people talking about this, you have solutions to so many problems the best they can think of is variations of a growing economy. So you get people might concede maybe that growth comes with some flaws and some negative impacts. So what you'll get is a nice adjective stuck in front of it. So sustainable growth, sustainable inclusive growth. growth. Oh, keep going, growth. yeah, green growth, organic, low-fat growth, fluffy you know, growth, you get kitten them. growth. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, imagine, yeah, the kitten just growing forever and ever and ever. I mean, it, this, that's a dystopian future. <laughs> that's bad kitten. Yeah. At <laughs> some point, that's a cat, isn't it? It shows almost how stuck our, our mindsets are in this paradigm that growth is the, is the be-all and end-all, and it's also it's the solution to our problems. And I, so I do, I do think on top of some of the structural questions, there is a bit of an imagination question, and you took both too young to remember this, but back in 83, Ronald Reagan said there is, there is no limits to growth because there's no limits to our collective imagination and human ingenuity. And I think in a way now, you know, in 2021, it's our limited imagination that's stopping us picturing, let alone building, an economy that's better than growth. And so my, my take on growth is that it's, I mean, it's a really blunt term. I often think it's a bit like the word move. So, Ollie, for example, if I just said, hey, Ollie, move, your first question would be, well, where? Up, down, yeah. sideways, faster, slower? Yeah. <laughs> and I think in a way we need to <laughs> add those questions to, to growth. What sort of growth do we need more of? What, what is it we need more of in our communities? What do we need to cultivate? Thinking about the direction and composition of growth. But I do think 
until the Chancellor the day after bringing down an autumn statement or the budget goes into the Radio 4 studios and the first question is, what's this going to do for loneliness in the UK or what's this going to do for the number of people who are sleeping rough or what's this going to do for the health of our rivers rather than what's this going to do for our GDP growth? Now I'm going to ask you a question. Did you speak to the German finance minister about the new deal this afternoon? No. And what was his reaction? I don't know. Peter, thank you. I mean, we saw today you know, GDP figures out and the, the commentary around them is that that is unilaterally a good thing. And we're not talking about the quality of jobs associated with that growth. We're not talking about the distribution oh, of that growth. It's depressing, isn't it? You would have thought we'd have learned over the last year that like, there's more to mm. an economy and a society that no. works than just what growth um, is. Right? I mean, don't and for a while, there, all, we were all going, like, oh, they, oh, we're all looking after each other now. It's fantastic. Look, this virus is horrible, but it shows what really matters. And we're all just going back to how things work. Now it's um, clap for management consultants. <laughs> That's, I'm going to start that. And hedge funds managers. I mean, it's. Yeah. I think it's profoundly sad that we're in a, this is a society that can bring in, create vaccines in record time because of collaboration amongst scientists around the world, focusing on the collective good. And then when you can have health systems like the NHS roll out the vaccines program, I mean, the people who gave me my vaccine, one was an A&E doctor putting in extra shifts because, and one was an, a dentist because she knew how to give you know, needles without flinching and just piling in on that effort. We're that society, but we're also that society that can't disentangle means and ends. We, we assume that growth is an ends in an, and the economy is an ends and an objective in its own right. We're not smart enough to disentangle. Well, what is the ultimate ends that we're going for? But who's, and, who's the we there? Because isn't there lots of research that, you know, people like the former Labour party leader would argue that um you know the the kind of radical proposals that put you know the health of communities and access to services front and center were really popular mm. um when you ask people do you like these things like yes i like these things and it's like you know are you worried about how we can pay for it no not particularly <laughs> it's like i just want these things so is it actually just quite a small cabal of uh, politicians and as you say media who they are interested in promoting the idea of growth being the, the root of everything good oh. rather than the rest of us. Oh, you stinking socialist. You'll be saying I don't, next, I don't know what's coming you'll be saying there, next but... that climate change is just the fault of fossil fuel companies. Oh, uh, hang on a minute. I think <laughs> I am equally as culpable as BP. Yes, um, equally. You're in the same yeah. league. <laughs> Definitely yeah. the same league. I think it's a it's a really lovely question and I'd add into that that if you just look at some of the results of the really lovely citizens' assemblies that have taken place in the UK over the last couple of years, I was involved in the, the Scottish one that re reported a, a couple of months ago. But you look at the results of that, and I think what's important about that is they're deliberative spaces where people are given the chance to sit down and chat, chat to each other and have a, have a di dialogue with each other. They come out with pretty robust, <laughs> ambitious, bold proposals. And I think that that proves to governments and politicians don't use the idea that the public are not up for this as an excuse but I mean you and I both know that if only it was as simple as policy change happening just because a majority of people want it I mean I think there are, hmm. there's a long we list live, we don't live in that yes. country do we yeah <laughs> yeah I mean if only our democracy in the UK worked like that it does it does make me weep a bit like for years and years and years you've seen 
environmental organisations spend money on polling to demonstrate what they know to be true, which is that the vast majority of people would rather we didn't burn this planet to a crisp. Mm-hmm. And then they like <laughs> put that polling out and say, see, everyone wants climate action. Yeah. Let's do climate action. And it's like, but you know that's not what's stopping it. Yeah. Come on, yeah. stop wasting your money. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think though it does... I mean, I think those polls help build momentum at least and help people feel that who are reading the polls maybe feel they're, they're not alone. I, mean, I collect some of those figures because I like just, I think they're useful to store and reel off to different different audiences. But I, I think that does prove that there is, it, the fact that the public's not up for this is, is a load of tosh if they're given the right information and the, you know, the right space to really think about what matters to them. But I did, do think it shines a spotlight back on the nature of our, our democracy and power inequalities within the democracy and, and who really does take decisions and who influences government more than others. And we've got a pretty thin form of democracy here in the UK and that's why initiatives like Citizens' Assemblies and, and other, other variations are as important. Hello, I'm Chris Packham and you're listening to Sustain a Babble. Happiness, happiness, the greatest gift that I Josh, you thought you were getting me in to speak about happiness, didn't you? Make you depressed. Well, no, okay. <laughs> so, no, no, happiness. Let's do happiness. Um, so, Ol and I have been cooking up for years plans for a revolution. Great. Um, we're going to establish the independent state of Babeltopia. Uh, Just as soon as I've finished putting the insulation in that shed ceiling <laughs> that you can see, as you can yes. see, I've got about halfway across this yeah don't worry this when that's done it's not going to happen anytime soon is this but, held yeah. together with the gaffer tape that's keeping your mic together uh yes yes this is yeah yeah very yeah, good it's a very professional operational round okay. and obviously if you wish to join us in babbletopia you will need to support us on patreon that's www.patreon.com slash sustainable where you can buy your ticket to a benign future and what i was wondering is when we establish our own country what are the th- things we should do how would you set up a country from scratch uh, in order to be a well-being (laughs) government because presumably a lot of the time you're working with governments who like you say you know they can't just uninvent stuff Mm. but imagine you didn't have to what would you what Mm. would you do what would you prioritize what would you measure and what would your top few ideas be i'd love to i'd love to have the conversation in that sort of context of an economy that got things right first time around rather than let this, and this is, in a way, the situation we've got now, this sort of what I describe as the three-stage or the long route to, to good society, is that you have this idea, grow the economy faster, faster, but turn a blind eye to the collateral damage, and then you try to sequester some back, funds back through taxes with all the leakage and political machinations that go on with that, and then that money gets used to try to heal and fix some of the collateral damage of, of the step one. And it's highly inefficient, let alone the damage that that does to people and planet, and it costs a shed load of money. And you can you see examples of that every time you look at a newspaper or a news headline, and it's almost that's the territory of so much social policy debate, so much charity effort. It's almost a sort of social democratic consensus of the last few decades. And so in your, what are you calling it, Babletonia, Babeltopia, the Nine Republic of Babeltonia or something. (laughs) If you can design an economy that doesn't do so much damage in the first place. And so I think this is a conversation around prevention, around the purpose of the economy, and that rather clunky term, but I think brilliant idea of pre-distribution, 
where we set up our economic structures. And these are things like worker cooperatives, that where you have the workers owning the capital rather than capital being in charge of the workers and just extracting as much as they can out of and all sorts of other business models of, of that same ilk that are about having business models in service of, of goals rather than in service of extracting profit for remote owners. If we're designing infrastructure, it's about communities and space and you know, green space rather than just con- designing infrastructure for funneling people like you know you are at the duty-free store just towards more and more consumption before you get to where you want to go if we're designing tax systems in a way that they reward the sort of activity we need more of um, where they incentivize positive activities and they come down heavier on things like wealth hoarding or pollution and those sorts of activities so essentially it's about asking the economy to do more of the heavy lifting and then try to attend to some of those demands on our public services that ultimately if we're a bit bolder could could be avoidable if if, you know if we're smarter in how we set up the economy we could get around that and will it be all right to wear your baseball cap the wrong way around Uh, dubious you'd need to have a referendum on that you would yeah Yeah. it's audio (laughs) no one knows until you say that So listener Kendrick on Patreon says, quite a few people were talking about work Mm -hmm. and kind of one of the things that may knacker our well-being the most, right? Being the jobs we do Mm -hmm. and how we do them and where we do them and stuff and whether or not we're being forced back to an office to make money for Mm -hmm. Pret-a-Manger. Anyway, Kendrick says, I wonder if people were less stressed about life due to having to work less. They could give more headspace to caring about the environment. Would a four-day week have any serious impacts on the economy? Um, and I guess, by extension, well-being. Like, yeah. What do you think about that? Should we all work less? Yes. Well, for those who don't have enough work, obviously, we want to give them space to have more more hours because uh, work's, I think, so often an important, for those who are able and want work, it's an important function in their lives. If it's good jobs, it brings dignity, purpose, relationships, sense of identity. And so if we embrace that side of work, I don't buy into this this idea of a fully automated luxury world where we have no work at all. I think I think there is something you know important oh. about that work. Um, but yeah, the type of work clearly really matters. And I and I think we've seen huge inequalities and qualities of jobs. So many people and you know literally on on demand at the you know the click of an app in the being treated as just-in-time inventory. Uh, and so for those folks, we need to attend to the quality job. But I think to the essence of the question, absolutely. I think how we distribute work and whether that's through four-day weeks or maybe working five day, five hours over more days, whether it's more public holidays, whether it's term time working. I mean, different people have different needs in terms of balancing out the way they shape their work life. But I think there is something about working less having more leisure time and in that leisure time being able to take place in take participate in civic activities those deliberative democracy exercises if course we've got if we're going to have a richer democracy that requires time if we're going to invest in our communities and there's so much caring that's required as as well in families and the community and if we're constantly ferocious worker bees we won't be able to undertake that and i think this idea of caring about the environment a bit more i think yeah i, I think that is part of it because like you, another thing, you would have thought, 
another thing that's so depressing is you would have thought the virus, for all that it's been awful, has there's not a single workplace in the country that hasn't in some way been affected by it in some way right and you would have hoped that we'd come out of this by having kind of rethought work a bit like and maybe we have i don't know it's too early to say but it's just so all of this sort of get back to the office stuff is just making me think that we haven't really we still think you go Mm. to a place to do a job that you don't like because that's where you're supposed to be yeah or you're your work your work capacity at home is challenging because of mm. other things going on in the, in your home but also i think people miss each other uh, i certainly mean speaking for for my team we're a remote team there's people based all over the world and so we were re- remote and on zoom b- before it was cool and we know how we profoundly miss each other we can't wait to just be together and, and we we're going through you know strategy review at the moment and that's really hard and we're wanting just to sit down face to face put our arms around each other as we talk through this and and so we i empathize with people who really wanted to go back back to the office but i think what i worry about is you know we used to like 10 zoom calls in a day how the hell are we going to do that when we have to factor in time to get from one office to another or a cafe to an office? I think it's got to, our threshold of what's a, what's possible in a day has to has to come down. But I think people we've, be, we've become very sort of strangely efficient. I mean, strange mm. to me. I, I, mm. Efficiency is a very strange concept to to me in general. But uh, I was talking to somebody who did go back to the office the other day for the first time in a while, and all of those nice things about being back in the office, like chatting to people and having spontaneous conversations with people you don't necessarily directly work with, meant that by the end of that day, that person was very stressed about how little work they'd been able to get done. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, yeah. oh, I've forgotten how frustrating this can be. But, you know, I had someone say the other day, I think this is really helpful, saying when they've been working at home through the pandemic and these are these are someone who's been lucky enough to work from their kitchen table. They they said their short-term efficiency has gone up. So bosh, 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 through the to-do list, you know, every day. But this person was saying what's come at a, as a lack of that or as a consequence of that perhaps is that their ideas, their deep thought, their analytical space has collapsed. So they can tick off the mm. short-term to-do list, but they what they were calling it their, their longer-term they use the phrase longer-term productivity. I'm a bit squeamish about the term productivity, but probably for the same reason you're squeamish about efficiency. But I think the point they were making is that there is maybe a bit of a trade-off uh, and, and we need to find ways to have that balance, the, the urgent and the important in our work. Oh. <laughs> now, got it in one hundred. <laughs> Minister, it takes time to do things now. <laughs> <laughs> So, talking of urgent, is there anything, is there any one thing that we can all do, that people can do, that listeners to this podcast can do to improve our society's well-being in our general lives? Smash what capitalism. can be done? Yes, smash capitalism. You're right, Dave, on that. <laughs> nice. Super. <laughs> Subliminal okay, two things, though. <laughs> but on the way to that, <laughs> uh, one thing that's lovely, and I think this is an example of what the wellbeing economy agenda is about is that a young woman called Laura based down in Brighton has kicked off a petition in the UK Parliament to asking the UK government to move towards a wellbeing economy and we'd love to get more more signatures on that so that's 
you can just put in a search engine, ideally Ecosia, not Google, um, wellbeing economy petition, and you'll find a link to it. So please, yes, add your name to that and punch it around as best you can. Well, we'll put it in the we'll put it in the show notes when we. Brilliant! Are. Thanks yeah. ever we so will. much. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the other thing is just to know that everyone's welcome to be part of We All as well. Uh, our, I, I describe our membership as if you want to be part of transforming the economy to make it more humane and more sustainable and you want to work with others to do so, then you're welcome. So, How do people, how do, people do that? How do they find you? Weall.org. W-E-A-L-L. Exactly. Wellbeing Economy Alliance. W-H-E-E-L. No. <laughs> no. It's just that when I say we all, that's, that's how it comes out. No, we it? think of it, we all as in, you know, we all together. You know, it's kind of like our theory of change as well as our name. Right, that is just about it for another episode of Babble. Thank you very much indeed to Catherine for being wise and clever and yes. like teaching us about how the world works. Some of the most simple and powerful and coherent explanations of like how the economy works I've mm. ever heard. All that stuff mm. about like, you know, why redistributive stuff isn't useful and pre-distributive stuff is like that made sense to me for the first time in a while so yeah thank you Catherine for being great thank you Dave for also being great and thank you to the equally great Dickie Moore who does the music at the beginning end and into twinkly bits of this podcast and just as great Arthur Stobel who does the logo what is on our t-shirts what you can buy from our website which is www.sustainababble.fish you can, can you not all, get in touch with us and you can tell us what you thunk of these thunkings. You can do that on the interweb by emailing us at hello at sustainababble.fish. Sorry. You can find us on the Twitter, just search the Babble Wagon, or you can go on the Facebook and search Sustainababble. We are not on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, uh, Snapchat, Twitch. Letterboxd, Twitch, Tinder, Bumble or Penge. <laughs> Penge. Penge, please, please <laughs> tell me there's a social network called Penge. Yes, where be. you can meet other people from Penge. <laughs> Don't come on that social network. <laughs> right. I live in Penge. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I missed the one seven six to Penge. Was it one seven six? One seven. I can't remember. Well, Classic. Depends Penge. where from. But yes, probably right. <laughs> anyway, are we done now? I think we're done. Right, I'm off to. Um, Smash capitalism, what? Good. No, I just wanted to say before you smash capitalism, if you enjoyed this chat and it has whetted your appetite for more talking about like economy and stuff, we've got other episodes about this. Go back and listen, mm. for example, to our chat with Kate Rayworth, episode 77, all about like... Donut, Donut economics. economics, that's right. And as trailed our uh, chat with Tim Jackson, which is episode 235. No, 215. I think, possibly. Anyway, just search Tim Jackson, it's that one somewhere. Yes? Can we go Good. now? I've let Can I down. smash capitalism now, please? Yes, you may smash capitalism. Super, right. Bye! Bye! You smashed it yet? It's on the list. Okay, there's a lot of things on the list, but it's Do on the insulation, list. Do insulation, establish independent republic of Babeltopia, smash capitalism. Yes.